honestly, I am arachnophobic. I, I cannot stand spiders. I think the evolutionary limit for a spider should be one inch. And anything that grows beyond that is like, we just, the social pact is we have to kill it. I have woken up quite a few times with a giant mini tarantula sitting next to me in bed. Mini tarantula? <laughs> Hello, I am Trevor Campbell, and this is You Made Me Queer, the show where I edit the Wikipedia page for the mantis shrimp to feature my headshot because I, too, am known for my ability to inflict painful wounds if handled incautiously and poorly understood and spend most of my life sheltering in burrows and holes. End quote from Wikipedia. Who, which one's which? It's impossible to tell from that description. That's right. Every episode, I invite a fantastic 2SLGBTQIA plus guest to point the finger of blame at who and or what made them queer. It's what I have been doing for over 70 episodes, for almost 100 guests, for several years, uh, seemingly without taking a drink of water if the the quality of my speaking voice right now is anything to go by and we're doing it one more time that's right maybe you've been here since the very beginning from the depths of the pandemic when i dry coughed into a microphone in my basement apartment and really i would say conservatively changed the media landscape of my generation question mark does that feel right that feels right with me, that sits with me. And checking Wikipedia, I can see tracks. This is cited. We shifted everything. We picked up the torch where Anita Bryant put it down. You know, she knew that something was making people queer. And we knew it too later. We just kept orange juice out of it. Thank you very much. We stuck to the facts here. And boy, oh boy, has it been an absolute dream come true. Doing this show has reconnected me to my queerness in ways that kind of changed my life, really. Really changed the way I thought about things, the way I connected with my queer community, the amount of water I drank, which is none, apparently, again, from the quality of my voice. Um, although I do choke on my spit a lot, so maybe I'm drinking too much water simultaneously. Anyway, I did all those things, and I did it for you because you deserve the truth. And, you know, you can't trust the woke media, but you could always trust You Made Me Queer. Uh, so thank you to every one of you who has listened to the show, downloaded it, told a friend about it, written a review, subscribed, liked, followed us on social media, all of the things that I have angrily demanded from you every episode that you have pulled through on it is weird to make uh art especially by yourself 
usually in a basement or a closet. Right now I'm doing it in the makeshift podcast studio in the house where I live, which is my house, um, the house I live in. And you're always alone and you're always kind of against a wall, (laughs) which is a weird way to tap into your most authentic self. But the ways I've been able to connect with people through it have made it so joy-inducing and so special. And the people I've had the chance to speak with, not just, you know, queer icons I know sort of amongst my orbit, but people who I've known of since I was, you know, a little pre-queer kid. Just kidding. Always so gay. Always so queer. But people that I were 900 degrees away from me that this show has given me the opportunity to connect to and to uh, harass and to laugh with and to share those conversations with you. One of the special things about the show, not only do I hear from a lot of queer folks, I've heard from a lot of not queer folks who have told me that listening to the show helped them feel connected to the queer community, which is great which is, you know, that's one of the things I think we're especially bad at these days is finding a way to step into a pool that we don't feel we should be in or that maybe people don't want us in, but at the same time, they want our allyship. And what are we supposed to do? Why is Trevor not drinking water? The point is, if this dumb show, if dumb me can help anyone feel like they have more space for queer people, that's pretty great. And if I can get attention for it, that's even better. So, you know, it's a win-win scenario. And, uh, and the activism, you know, I, I'm, I feel really honored to have shouldered part of the burden with, uh, you know, done my part up there with the Harvey Milks, you know, with the Sylvia Riveras. Don't worry, I did it too. <laughs> I uh, probably confused a lot of people on a podcast by making them think I actually think something's making people queer. So, you know, tell me where to sign my autograph in a cement sidewalk square. And I'm there, people. Wherever, where's the queer sidewalk in the world? Find me the queerest square of sidewalk and I'll get my fingers ready, if you know what I'm saying. But all of that points towards... My final guest, as of now, listen, I don't like ultimates or finals. I certainly didn't like the finale of Lost, as you've heard about in this show. But You Made Me Queer, for all intents and purposes, will be ending after this broadcast. As a podcast, as a podcast, I've already told you the book is forthcoming. More info about that later. But as a podcast, will it ever come back as one episode or a live show or maybe something for a one night only with me in a very flattering dress. It's possible. It's possible, but I'm not committing to it. So for all intents and purposes, this is our finale. And our finale guest is pretty spectacular. So my finale guest is Danny Roberts. Do y'all folks know Danny? I know of Danny, especially because as I've told you before, I grew up in between Canada and the US. And I don't mean like, you know, in the ravine beneath the Peace Bridge connected to Niagara Falls, but I mean, I moved back and forth between the countries. And so I was exposed to media from different countries at different pivotal times of my life. And right when I was reaching sort of the come out cusp, ejecting myself 
from the space station, the doomed space station of Catholicism. I lived in the U.S. in the Rust Belt of Ohio, and I found a little show called MTV's The Real World, New Orleans, colon, New Orleans. And I was 16, I was in grade 11, and there was a lot of really complicated queer representation on television that I didn't understand, and I couldn't imagine a future for myself in any of those archetypes, quote-unquote. And this person, Danny Roberts, was on Real World, colon, New Orleans, and uh, and really kind of became a weird light for me where I thought, this is a queer person who kind of makes sense to me in, in sort of the zeitgeist in which I live and really became kind of a reference point for me as I navigated those first steps of coming out, which is huge, really huge. Cut to, what, 25 years later? And I had the immense privilege of having a wonderful conversation with Danny, who is just as sweet and funny and eloquent and smart and empathetic as uh, one might hope. So that's what you're going to get. You're going to get all of that momentarily. I'm not going to tell you that much more about it. But if you're like the real what? Danny Huberts? Maybe you're from Canada, maybe from somewhere else. That's fine. Let me give you a quick little catch up. So Danny Roberts is perhaps best known originally for having appeared on The Real World, colon, New Orleans in 2000, and again on The Real World Homecoming, colon, New Orleans in 2022. That's right. They sucked them all back into reality TV. The Real World is kind of the mother of reality shows, as Danny will tell you on this conversation we're about to have. At the time, there was really like Survivor started after the real world. It was it was very proto and uh, everyone watched it because it was monoculture, right? And MTV was like the crown of monoculture, at least for my age group. So huge, huge, huge. But also Danny became one of the faces of the don't ask, don't tell policy because while on the show, his boyfriend was actively in the military and could only appear on the show with a blurred face. That is something that happened not that long ago, folks. Danny has gone on to use his platform to support all manner of 2S LGBTQIA issues, currently supporting U.S. nonprofit History Unerased, whose programs work to ensure that all students learn a more complete story of America and promote a genuine understanding and equality for all queer folks, while improving the history and social studies education all students receive. It is so amazing what these folks do. Imagine if we had something like that where, you know, we acknowledge queer people uh, contributed to history in positive ways. There are so many stories we were not taught. I know every marginalized group is like, hey, us too. Unfortunately, if you check out a book written before 1980, it really looks like white cishet men ruled the world and built it and it turns out a few other people chipped in so you can find out more about that at unerased.org but buckle up sit down pour yourself no boy i'm not getting emotional i'm choking on my spit again too much water but get yourself a drink god knows i need one apparently and enjoy this the final episode boy oh boy of you made me queer with a spectacular guest. Enjoy my conversation with Danny Roberts. You made me queer. 
Okay, so uh, we said this off mic moments ago, but I want to get for the record, you think Seattle has the worst weather in the United States. Is that correct? <laughs> uh, we're going to start off with this. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, Seattle's got pretty bad weather. I lived there for 10 years. Absolutely love the Pacific Northwest. Love everything about it. I genuinely do, but I had to leave there because I could not take another winter, which is six months of gray misery. Totally. It's funny because in Canada, we don't have a California or a Florida. Florida is more problematic, but we have uh, British Columbia and Vancouver. But the problem with Vancouver is that it's super rainy. So that's kind of the best we can get. Right. Vancouver is is the Seattle of Canada. Sorry, Canada just has shit weather. But you know, <laughs> you guys have figured out a way to thrive in it and make it work, which is impressive. Most people can't can't pull it off. Yeah, we uh, man, maybe that's why we're so polite because we've just lost our our fight drive. We just had to kind of like succumb in a certain way. But yeah, like Vancouver's as warm as it gets. <laughs> our summers are pretty great across the board. Like in the Toronto right. area, we've got a great summer. In these places where we live with shitty weather, because I live in Vermont, I'm in Southern yeah. Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> summers, somebody there for summers. It's all about summer and that's where we find our joy. Yeah. That's why it get, gets, us, gets us through the winter is knowing the next summer's coming. <laughs> I think it's true. I've lived in places where it's warm all the time, which is great, but you also kind of lose your sense of time, I feel like, because you lose the seasonal markers, which we're so dependent on in the North. Like all of my memories, yes. I know what time of year they happened because was I or was I not wearing like a nine foot coat? Right. And I, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think seasons are very important. It's not right not to have seasons. In my mind. <laughs> oh. I, I also love, love the, the U.S. Southwest. New Mexico mm -hmm. is the most beautiful state. But, you know, so much of the Southwest just kind of is variations of really nice and really hot all year long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm also big on forest. Forests are very important to me, and I, I could not live in a place that's not forested. We can talk about the so. forest behind you in a minute, but going back to the Southwest, would you be more afraid of a lizard or a snake or a big spider? It depends on what kind of lizard we're talking about, because some of them are poisonous. This one's easy for me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, I am arachnophobic. I, I cannot stand spiders. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I live in the woods here in Vermont, so we get gigantic wolf and house spiders all the time. And sometimes you just get surprised a hundred percent i i have woken up quite a few times with a giant mini tarantula sitting next to me in bed mini tarantula <laughs> actually these uh surprisingly i don't know how poisonous they are but the wolf spiders here are gigantic they come in from the woods and they just love my house sorry did you call it a wolf spider they're wolf spiders they're they're predatory they're great to have around because they eat all the the insects that we don't want like mosquitoes yes they also love our spaces and you know we're talking half the size of my hand oh no which means oh, no. nothing to you over a screen here but yeah that's not you know, great just... podcast content but it's like what would that be <laughs> like uh three three inches ten yeah three or four inches across not what you want to see in your house anyhow no. yeah I, I i don't i don't i'm not a big fan of spiders they're important in nature but 
not in my house. I think the evolutionary limit for a spider should be one inch. And anything that grows beyond that is like, we just, the social pact is we have to kill it. <laughs> That's just Or me. scoop it up and remove, remove it and take it somewhere else yes. away from me. I, I grew up in the Southeast where we have all sorts of huge venomous spiders and all sorts of other things, snakes yeah. especially. So that's my experience. Moving to Seattle was heaven because there were so few poisonous things and right. poisonous insects. Same here in Vermont. I'm a fan of this. I am a fan of this. Yeah. So let's go to the woods because you like the woods. So uh, for, again, great podcast content. We're talking about things we can see. But Danny is in this sort of like nice little wooden shanty on the side of a house. I use <sighs> shanty in the most it, positive it, sense. It, it is a what you would kind of refer to as as a mud it's a mud room okay but it is a, a you know a rustic mud room built out of timbers off my property here oh my god did you build it i did this actually uh became my pandemic office i came here from i lived in Whoa. new york at the time and i left new york as it broke out in new york came here thinking i was staying for a few weeks Ended up living here at my cabin. I already owned it, but you know, I rarely ever got to come here back then. I ended up living here for two straight years through the pandemic. And I built this, at the start of the pandemic, I built this on with a friend of mine. So I would have office space, a place to work. Wow. And now it's my, it's my favorite room in my cabin here. And you fell in love with the place. So was this your primary residence now? It is my primary residence now. You know, I stay here as much as I can. My daughter goes to school in the city and mm. when I'm with her, I'm in the city. Oh, uh, yeah. I always forget but, Vermont is like commutable to New York. Uh, not to New York, actually. Boston now. I didn't state that piece. Uh, and I don't okay. talk about it much because I have zero connections to Boston other than my ex is from there. Mm -hmm. uh, and we share custody. She goes to school there. And when I'm with her, I'm down there. Uh, mm -hmm. But this is my home here in Vermont. You know, I'm here as much as I can be. I love having my daughter here too. Oh yeah, is she woodsy because of the environment she's growing up in? Like, could she? Yeah, yeah. Could she take on a spider? Is she the spider killer in the house? She's not a fan of spiders either, but absolutely <laughs> oh, no. loves playing out in the mud. And you know, a stick is her favorite toy, and loves to run around the woods in a princess dress, but loves just loves it. And we stay here for the summer. Yeah, which is just amazing. Like she gets an amazing experience. She has no idea what an amazing life she's having being able to spend summers in a place like Vermont and then going back to school in the city. Oh, my God, that's so great. And I think that's just the perfect segue, because sometimes you spend too long in a princess dress or you spend too long in a mud pit and something goes wrong. You need both. We didn't always have both. And now looking back, we realize those were the kinds of things that turned us into the queer monsters we are today. So what I do on this show and why I've invited you, Danny, the safe space of the mudroom around you to share your secrets is to tell me once and for all who and or what made you queer. Ooh, yeah. Well, there's, there's definitely a turning point. But this one's complicated because, you know, I, like we were talking about earlier, this is not that long ago. We're talking about the 90s when I was coming of age. It just wasn't an option really to be out for most people unless you lived in the biggest cities. And even then it was ghettos of gays, older gays, but it wasn't a thing for most younger gays to be out back then. So it wasn't an option. I, I grew up in a rural place, North uh northwest georgia where you know extremely conservative it just wasn't even a concept it was it's where marjorie taylor yeah. green's from right her oh my god i wasn't gonna say it because i didn't know if your audience uh do you have a lot of u.s listeners 
Uh, there's U.S. listeners, and we all love Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay, great. Then I wasn't going <laughs> to say it because I didn't know if your audience that that reference would make any sense. But yes, I'm from Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. Oh boy! So that tells you everything to know about the culture I grew up in. So being gay was not a concept to me at all, other than an illness. And mm -hmm. I had no connection to that, no sort of, you know, nothing in popular media portrayed an obvious example of sexuality, definitely not in my immediate environment, except in a negative way. So I wasn't, wasn't out, it wasn't a concept to me. It wasn't a concept until I got to college at the University of Georgia. And this is, you know, early internet days and discovered sort of interest school chat rooms slash, uh, <laughs> you know, the beginnings of America online. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. And for anyone under 25, America online was an early internet service provider. They would send you CDs in the mail, which was so cool. It would be like in a magazine. It's like, you can get 10 hours of the internet for free. And you would install this <laughs> thing and it would be over your phone line. And there were like, they had like their own chat rooms, right? Yes, and that it's where sort of what we think of as modern internet-based gay cultures began. It was in these <laughs> chat rooms in American Online because America Online was the way that most of us, at least in the U.S., probably Canada too, were getting online. Well, it's weird um, because I half grew up in the U.S. in Ohio, so I moved back and forth a lot. So I understand I'm I'm fluently bilingual in like North American cultural references, and yes. of course the resulting Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan promo pick you've got mail <laughs> yes, which yeah. is just a commercial for two hours funny side note one of my terrible jobs that i had in college probably one of the worst was actually working at the america online customer service center where people called in to cancel their service who were pissed that that cd never stopped their free service and now they're paying <laughs> oh no right because there were no laws about this so it would just automatically start billing them Right. It would just start billing you and, and people didn't understand that. They just thought, oh, after the free parts up, it'll end. And then suddenly six months later, they owe America online 600 bucks or whatever. Oh, my God. And they were pissed. So they would call they would call me to cancel it again. <laughs> and what would you do? Would you could you do anything or would you just be like, sorry? I was actually a, a bilingual agent. It was in Canada because I occasionally would get calls from Quebec. But, uh, you know, my job was to try to save the account and, and, and give them another free month. That was absolutely the early days. And that was really I, like those early days in college and discovering those chat rooms is where I first became aware of, oh, being gay as a actual concept and oh, one that maybe applies to me. 100%. Um, and the idea that you would be having this dawning in college is perfectly normal now, you know, like eight-year-olds and whatever have agency to talk about their identity, their orientation. But at the time, we were very proto. My question is, do you remember the name of any of those chat rooms? No, it is so long ago and such a blur. I think mostly I was going into chat rooms that were just local, trying to keep them local. So I'm sure they were related to U University of Georgia on campus, whatever. Gay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now the reason I bring that period up though, there's a, there's a segue here is along with that, I was introduced to Lucas Ridgestone, who was definitely a turning point in my mind. I had such a thing for that guy back then. <laughs> I think I know who that is, but for our, our listeners, could you explain? Yes, this is hilarious. Lucas Richstone was an early gay porn star with Bellamy. 
Oh my God. Um, in those early internet days where you could spend, you know, eight minutes downloading an image, <laughs> totally. seeing some of, some of these first images and it was like, holy shit, who is this beautiful man? Yeah, like eight to 15 and like the bars <laughs> slowly going down the screen. Slowly and just one, one image. And one then image. sometimes it would get interrupted in the middle and it would freeze and you'd have to start over. You're like, the, oh, is it worth it to do this again? <laughs> I know. And you're like, I guess the next enough. I can just imagine the rest. At the time, there was like a big wave of like 90s Czech porn, essentially. They're beautiful, mostly actually hetero men who were doing porn for money in Eastern Europe. And like, this is the genuine yeah. story. And at the time, the reason it was so ubiquitous was because it kind of was some of the only porn out there. There wasn't a ton of porn out there that you had a wide access to. Right. Especially a, a newbie like me who had no clue. I, you know, someone must have introduced me to him. But, you know, from then on, it was like, wow, I think this is interesting and attractive to me. And I think I'm feeling something here. But going back to school, though, you know, I definitely remember having my my main crush in school, who was also named Lucas. Whoa, okay, wait, oh. did did knowing that Lucas <laughs> proceed the like, what's the chicken and egg? Yeah. Of oh, yeah, I grew Lucas's? up with the other Lucas. It just is just serendipity. Wow. Just absolute <laughs> fluke. Not that they looked alike in any way, uh, but that was my crush through school always. Well, actually, on that note, to go back for a second, I read a news article they did about all those Bellamy boys. And apparently the way they were sold it was like, hey, you can do this. We're just going to release it in North America. So no one in Europe is ever going to know. And it seemed like a super yes. safe way for them. But then, of course, it all came back to Europe. Because, again, these were all mostly hetero men doing gay porn. This was right. like the early days of for pay so they're like yeah we're shipping tapes to north america like the internet as we know it now wasn't a thing so it seemed very possible like i can keep my life separate absolutely mm -hmm. it just didn't turn out that way uh, out of curiosity <laughs> i recently looked him up just to see like is lucas rich don still around what is yeah what's this man's real story sure enough he's like this you know he's still sexy but he's far older now uh and and he now directs gay porn <laughs> Possibly straight porn too, uh, but absolutely hetero. I mean, good for him for building a career out of it. And also in a weird way, it's sort of like, feels very woke and I champion it to be like, you were just, you weren't defined by labels. You were doing your own thing and like gay, not gay, whatever, man. You know, as long as they're happy, but he still got it, hey? Getting paid, I'm sure made it helped a lot. Sure. Getting paid never sucks. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So this other, so Lucas, you knew, is this from grade school? Like when did this crush start? I grew up with him all through school. He was like the guy who developed early in school and was just this beautiful fucking man mm -hmm. by ninth grade. And like, yeah, yeah, like looked like an adult. Absolutely. And was also like the nicest guy too. Devastating. Good people. Yeah. It's not all Marjorie Taylor Greens where I'm from. They may all believe the same shit, but they all That's don't right. act like that. <laughs> oh my God. And I remember that. That's funny because I was, I'm tall now, but I was like five, three until like grade 11. And there's always like one girl, everyone looks like a child. And then one girl has like full blown boobs and is like an Amazon. And you're like, what that next to like a tiny little girl. And they're the same age. As we become adults, you realize most of those people were incredibly self-conscious at the time. Right. We were self-conscious next to them, but they were actually 
just as much, if not more self-conscious next to us because they kind of felt alone in that, but we didn't realize that back then. Right. Now, I'm like you, I still look like a child even into college. In fact, I was an education major and when I did my practicum, I, uh, my professor pulled me aside and was like, you're going to have to really dress the part because you're not going to get respect. You look. 12. <laughs> oh my god. That's so well, like what were you were dressing like your clothing looked youthful too? Uh oh yeah, I was a total raver kid back then running around in jinkos and and yes. you know ringer tees and <laughs> Oh my god, that and like a puka shell necklace. No, I didn't go that far. No okay. puka shell necklaces, but you know, more power to you if you're into them back then. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. Like a visor or something. I really see that image really tracks with me. Okay, so he's like, if you're going to work in education, we need some like Dockers button ups or something. You yeah, like you need the full thing. You need the 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 jacket, the tie. Like you really have to play this up, or you're not. Mm. You're going to struggle with getting respect. But, you know, then I graduated from university and ended up on the real world. So I never ended up teaching traditionally. Right. Anyhow. <laughs> and and so before we go there, if we go there, this guy, did Lucas also go to your college? No, no. Okay. I was actually my year of, uh, you know, I grew up in a, rural, a very rural town where it wasn't actually common for most kids to go to college. Uh, okay. I was the only person that year from my town that went to my university, which was kind of nice. I got to be anonymous and sort of restart my life. Right. Lucas and I, like, we were not friends. Okay. Yes, with my big <laughs> eyes across the room. Yeah. You know, I was terrified that he would ever know that I had a crush on him. But in my mind, it, it was not gay at all. It was just, oh, I admire this guy. <laughs> That's right. I am, I respect him showering. Okay, so yeah. you went to university, you got to start over and you started over in these chat rooms. Did you meet people from these chat rooms? What were the kind of chats you were having in there? Yes, uh, I met uh, a couple of guys on my campus who sort of became <laughs> my inverting gay mentors in the early days there, so, kind of showing me the ropes. But, you know, again, this was a time when even on a university campus, and, you know, UGA is at the time more so than was a very progressive campus, but still mm -hmm. in the deep south and still that era. People weren't out really. Only yeah. a handful of people were out on campus. Uh, so even the, you know, those first guys I met were all closeted too. Right. Uh, so they showed me the closeted ropes. Then it, it got me brave enough to go to my first gay bar, which was called Bone Shakers. It was the only gay bar there in Athens. Like the names like pour pour drink out for every copywriter in the world who is creating the names for these queer bars because they are always so good. <laughs> Bone shakers, we love Bone it. Bone shakers. It was it was like in a, a an old industrial corner of downtown and down an alley. It was so yeah. shady. Yeah. Like when you went there, you didn't want anyone to see you go in there. But at the same time, it was a perfect place to get gay bashed because <laughs> nobody was around and it was dark alleys. So you know, probably in my second quarter there at school that first year I went to that bar for the first time had to get blackout drunk to get the bravery to go down and do it and it just you know changed my world I met the the first guy that I sort of saw as my first boyfriend there oh wow um, his name was Andy and he wanted to be my official first boyfriend and that was crossing a line for me so that was oh, the got end it. Of that. Oh no. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't I was so not there. I mean It's it a different me... thing to say it, right? To to use names like that. 
Yeah, it's it was, you know, it's at the time it was scary and dangerous. That too. Definitely was not something that most families would accept. Uh, you know, most people's worst fear is rejection by your family mm -hmm. or absolutely with employment was the fastest way to not be employed. We just didn't talk about it. And uh, to admit it to yourself was felt dangerous, even at least to me at the time. Part of it, you know, just uh, comes from the culture I was part of. I was part of this really Southern Baptist. That's what we'll say. Southern Baptist culture just permeates everything there and still does. That's what Marjorie Taylor Greene is a cancerous outgrowth out of that. That's right. And uh, a big fan of the show. So, hey, Marjorie, thanks for tuning in. <laughs> And hey, Marjorie, uh, yeah. I would love to wrestle you. <laughs> That's right. We'll have a boxing match. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah, give her the spiders. But yeah, it's funny, too. And um, I don't know, it's, it's different for folks now. And I'm happy about that. But you talk about coming out and kind of finding these things. But it's weird because the two truths and I experienced this, too, of like, you're coming out and going through these rites of passage, but you're doing it in a way that is still very segmented and has a lot of conditions put upon it. So it's like, there's a lot of coming out you're going to end up doing later that you're just delaying. Was that your experience too? Right. Absolutely. You know, it was a, a four-year journey for me there where I, I think today the difference is, is when people talk about coming out, most people imagine it as, and a lot of people today have this sort of, it's like flipping a switch. Yeah. Tell the world if it's not already obvious. And there's a whole lifestyle to plug into on the internet, which is already, I think, today happen. I think people yeah. come out and have an online life that's gay. And then it's just a natural extension to flip the switch in our real life. Yeah. But I think for most of us back then, definitely for me, it was a four-year journey through university of slowly accepting it and one step at a time, you know, going from, okay, Maybe I'm bisexual. And I definitely had boyfriends and girlfriends all through college. I'm a very sexual person, definitely was then. <laughs> so uh -huh. I have never been the kind of gay man who is just purely like, ooh, I don't, women are disgusting. That That's never been my mindset. Right, which is um, probably good. Hopefully we're moving past that uh, women are ooh. <laughs> I don't know. I hear a lot of it still to this day. And I'm like, really? It's weird. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty weird. There's so um, much misogyny built into queer culture. And it's like one of those unfortunate false bottom things where you think in marginalized communities, everyone knows how shitty it is to be marginalized. You know, there's so much segmentation of marginalization. We're very good at it as human beings. Yeah. And no one is immune from it. Yeah. But that's that was never my mindset. And in a way that I've never been entirely sexually... Repulse is not the word, but I, 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 I women are, are not that I, I am drawn to them, but I still think women are incredibly s sexy and beautiful. Like, sure. That's just yeah. always been my mindset. And it's okay if that's not someone's mindset. But that was that kind of dictated a lot of my coming out journey where it made it probably a more slow, gradual process. I just think at that age, I was into sex. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't yeah. Really totally. That makes sense. What you identified as. Yeah, I think that's ultimately my mindset through that period. And I think it can be a clear <laughs> path when you're like, if you're cis male and you're attracted to other cis males with an absence of attraction to cis females, you could be like, oh, I must be gay or whatever. But if you're also attracted to the opposite sex, you might be like, I don't know, maybe it is. It's more confusing, uh, certainly in the 90s or whenever this was, there was way less of a 
we we had no nuance about it even bisexuality people were like ah you're just too scared to be gay yeah i was gonna say that there was zero nuance in any of this at the time it was just sort of binaries of this or that and you and, yeah. and so there was pressure to like jump to one side but i definitely had girlfriends and boyfriends at the same time sexually active with them through college <laughs> i mean very lucas Ridgeton of you danny <laughs> you made me queer you made me queer we'll be right back and now back to more you made me queer you made me queer my girlfriend through college my main girlfriend who i'm still friends with to this day she's now a professor oh, wow. one of the most sexual humans i've ever met in my life <laughs> and uh she's a lot of fun she actually loved that i had boyfriends even though it also made her jealous but she also really loved it so that wow. helped too <laughs> okay great so she was straight like not strangely but like greatly very supportive of it yes but at the same time very jealous of it and not supportive of it i think seg segmented is such a perfect word that you've used that mm. I, I kept my life so segmented that i didn't encourage the two to mix you know it wasn't like oh you should meet my boyfriend we should all hang out it was two very segmented lives right because she was who she was I, I was open about it but I didn't encourage deep conversation about it or mixing the two which is funny because then and folks in the U.S. obviously know this folks in Canada might not know this as much then immediately after college you went on to like you ended the segmentation part of your life very quickly and decidedly yeah uh so you know Towards the end of university, I fully embraced the identity of just being a gay man. Absolutely love men. I think men are incredible. And uh, <laughs> You know, we don't hear that enough these days. Let's hear it for men. Yeah, I mean, men get a lot of shit these days. And I, <laughs> I think true. men, just like all humans have, we have lots of our own shitty qualities. A lot mm -hmm. of us are very ego driven, mm -hmm. yada, yada. But men have many incredible aspects as well. and and are just fucking beautiful creatures. So with, with that said, you know, when I got to the end of university, I accepted that I was at a phase in my life where I, I wanted to fully embrace that. And I got cast on the real world right out of college. And that to me was, I took that as my turning point to embrace it as there's no going back. You know, we don't have to go, this is no real world podcast, but I'm curious, was there any pressure from producers to be in the closet or to not be in the closet? Or was that fully your own decision, which way you wanted to go? No, they understood that I was still semi-closeted. I was not out to my family or, or some of my friends even. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this again, very segmented my home life where I grew up. Like, very few people there knew and I, wa and I wanted to keep it that way. Uh, and we'll get, we can get to that in a minute why. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, the main reason I knew that doing that that show was going to, there was no turning back and revealing that truth to everyone. And that was scary as hell to me. Mm -hmm. But they never pushed, the production never pushed a narrative about me being in the closet. They were aware, but I honestly wasn't sure what they were playing on as my storyline. I knew that me being new to embracing my truth was part of my storyline, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize that they were going to play up as much of the truth that I really wasn't fully out yet. Reality TV is so ubiquitous now and in a way that's bled into social media and, and things where it's like 
it makes more sense to think of your life in terms of a story. But at that time, like, it's really weird to think about yourself, like, what's my gimmick, kind of? You know, my season was the night season of it. And, and, this, and the real world is the mother of reality TV. And at the time, for a lot of people that don't know, the format of it is very strange to younger people now. It was the only reality TV out. It was the first reality TV show. And it... There was no gimmick, there was no competition, there was no voting, yada, yada, none of this sort of, you know, dark, yeah. twisted elements that are such a ubiquitous part of reality TV. Now, this at the time was just taking seven people from different walks of life across the US, and I think there were some Canadians in there at some point, uh -huh. and a few others being tossed together to live together and clash. And it was like, the foundations of so much social justice work today and mm -hmm. concepts like this is where this, these conversations began if you go back and watch those early seasons you hear them talking about concepts which are really radical at the time but are now like commonly held beliefs mm -hmm. that were super radical and a lot of these conversations this is the first time it was happening because it was the first time people of different walks of life were being thrown together and televised and a lot of truths were coming out we all lived in our little bubbles where yes. mass media controlled everything at the time. That's right. But yeah, by the night season, I had seen a, a couple of the seasons. I didn't grow up in a place where we had cables, so I hadn't seen a lot of it, which is a good thing. I think it, I think I would have been afraid to want to take part in that if I had seen <laughs> yeah, all yeah. of them. <laughs> but by the night season, I understood that there were certain people that they always had on. They almost always had somebody who identified or partly identified as LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, you know, always had their sort of token angry black person. There was these right. tokens that they began sort of repeat casting. And I picked up on that pattern and I picked up on the pattern that there were always storylines written around. The producers were originally soap opera writers. Oh, producers. wow. Okay. So that's where sort of the framework comes from is sort of soap opera effect right. storylines that are written around everybody as characters. Yeah. All genuine and truthful, what you see is mostly what you get, at least to a point. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure to a point. It's still TV. It's so funny that you say that you in a small town hadn't been exposed to it too much because, like I said, I moved back and forth between kind of the Toronto area and the Rust Belt of Ohio throughout my childhood. And so I moved back to the U.S. in grade 11 and we had no MTV in Canada. And I was like, I don't know anything anyone in my high school is talking about so i need to watch mtv to have like some kind of cultural touchstone uh because like i don't know it i don't know these bands or whatever so yeah that was uh that's, my first foray into it that's wild <clears throat> and yeah. at the time like if you wanted to get the pulse of, of pop culture and day-to-day -day life it was watching real world yeah i don't remember the exact numbers but the real world at the time drove like 80 percent of uh mtv's revenue so it was Whoa. huge and it had a huge audience and almost all young people were watching it. Really young people too, which blows my mind. I now realize, I didn't realize how young the audience actually skewed, but it also skewed all the way up to people at the time who were in their you know, 30s, who were living vicariously through these 20 somethings. Right, that's so um, funny, hey? Yeah, because we were a little, a little younger, but it's, it felt aspirational. We're like, wow, imagine having roommates, imagine living in a big house, right. that and, kind of thing. It made us all want to run off to go live in a big city and have this diverse roommates and, and live this, yeah. you know, dream life. Yeah. And this dream house. Man, oh man. So that Somewhere is that part others. of 
your You Made Me Queer, where you're going, like you had college, you had the chat rooms, we had the bone shakers, um, we had Andy, <laughs> we had the girlfriend who kind of, I think we're blaming because she was very, she was like, yeah, sleep with guys. So she's on the hook here. Christina, I have to make sure she hears this. Christina, Christina. <laughs> Christina, you are partly to blame. Or also she probably for Danny this. going on the show. Yeah. So then are, are you are you blame anything related to the real world or where do we go next? I uh, I think with the real world, there was just absolutely no turning back. It wasn't because it, it went from being my own personal story to my story became something much bigger than I am. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in those early days as the show aired, which, by the way, you mentioned like it wasn't in Canada at the time. The other strange thing that, that happened over many years is MTV as it spread globally. People in countries across the world, which eventually was just about everywhere for probably another 10 years. I would be traveling, <laughs> and, you know, in Iceland or Denmark or wherever the hell I would be. And people would come up to me and be like, what are you what are you doing here? Aren't you filming the show right now? Like, <laughs> right. No, that was years ago, but it was just hitting these countries. Right. But it was wild. You know, I, I was like reliving the launch of the show over and over again because I love to travel. And yeah. it happened so many times across the globe. And I could tell like, oh, it must have just launched in Brazil because these people are absolutely loving He's oh my losing god their mind over it like what are you doing here <laughs> that would be so weird because Wayne, like how old were you 21 22 on that thing i was 20 21 or 22 when i filmed it and now right. for another 10 years of my life i just kept reliving it reliving it and back then we they would just re-air shows over and over again for like two yeah. years so it just was on loop repeat and people just watched it and watched it and watched it so it was a huge part of my foundational years in my 20s and, you know, the issues that I ended up representing through that, which don't, don't ask, don't tell, like political politics became a big part of my story. Yeah. And I just ended up carrying this banner, even though, you know, if you looked in, inside of me and my own personal life, I was still in my own journey of just sort of coming out and embracing my, my true self. And right. it was a, a wild, wild time in life. I truly cannot imagine because especially talking about the shadow it had, like if from 21 to 31, people got to know me through the context of behavior and like choices I made as a 21 year old, I'd just be like, oh, my God, no, I'm not. I'm 31 now. Like, I'm completely different. That must have been so weird to navigate. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. You become a very introspective person. And on, on the flip side, it really makes you I'm very into psychology. Uh, I think I probably always was, but this just deeply got me into psychology and just understanding how the mind works and how people approach this and how media changes our behavior. And this has only become more and more interesting to me as time has gone on. At the time, television was the only media driver, radio to a degree, but it was television and it really steered behavior and culture. Today, it's the internet. But mm -hmm. You know, it was the internet of its time and just living through that as a, as a product and an outcome coming out the other side of that machine. Yeah. You, I've spent a lot of my life analyzing and processing the psychology of what the hell happened. And which is so closely linked to the psychology of the mainstream, which I think is hard for people to remember in that because there's been such a death of the mainstream, but at the time, really, we had so few central sources 
that one TV show could kind of like shift the political spectrum of an entire country. Like, it's absolutely mind boggling to think about. Yeah, I mean, this was such a, a big show that if you remember the San Francisco season, for people who know that, when when mm -hmm. Pedro died, he was sort of one of the first vocal HIV activists who absolutely shifted culture's mindset on HIV for the first time. Um, when he died, Clinton went to his funeral. That's how big the show was back in yeah. the day. Like, it was very culturally important and impactful. It's hard for people to imagine now because we, yeah, like you said, we don't have these sort of central media pieces of content or whatever the case that draws the mass audience together. Yeah, um, totally. Speaking of a, a mass audience and shifting culture, I think what my story was ultimately about, what age were you when you first saw the real world? Like, I think I was in grade 11, so I would have been 16. 16, right? Like 13 yeah. to 16, tons of people back then watching it. So, you know, for millennials watching that show, in particular in my season, I, I think I was portrayed and, and genuinely am generally like the nice guy next door <laughs> is what yeah. it's easy. I'm easy to relate to that allowed a lot of people to sort of paint whatever picture they wanted of me onto me, mm -hmm. which is ultimately sort of mostly what our own idealized versions of what gay is in each of yeah. us. Mm. It became that canvas. And for millennials, particularly, it was a huge mind shift in mainstreaming gays. Uh, it's been wild to me to understand how many, especially younger millennials, their first exposure to gay was me, and it shifted their mindset and, and led them to coming out at very young ages. And, and your the millennial generation was yeah. sort of the first to come out in mass and really change the landscape. Yeah, That's... not saying that I am the direct result of that, but I was a piece of that puzzle at the time that was very important for the millennial generation. I'm Gen X, by the way. I'm like baby Gen X. I'm 46. I okay. but I relate. I'm right on the cusp. So I relate to older millennials just as much as I do to Gen X. Totally. That makes sense. That's so funny. And I think I've been skirting around that because I don't I guess I didn't want to embarrass you, but I'm sure you get this kind of thing all the time, which is like, yeah, you were that person that I saw on TV where I was like, that seems like a person and a gay person coexisting in the same body versus like a gay person who's also like a villain or like the comic relief or like the only thing we saw in the media was like these spectacular notions of gay people versus just like you can just be kind of chill and like, you know, not cause problems and like not be threatening. and Or if I do cause problems, it's just and or fun. <laughs> right, right. But then also it's a weird thing where it's like, yeah, and also it's a person where just like you said, you, I guess it's the nature of TV or the media, you become a canvas where ultimately we're all just projecting just, it's like a cipher, just some notion of like, oh, something I could be or that could exist in the world. But yeah, I think it was nice too to be like, yeah, and you can be a role model, but also just be like, get drunk or be a person who like does a dumb thing or whatever. Like that's okay too. The role model who makes bad choices occasionally. <laughs> we need more of those, I think. Complex figures. Now, unfortunately, we are nearing the end of our time. So before we move to the final segment, is there anything else you want to blame? <laughs> yeah, I, I will flip this around and I will blame the repressive culture of where I grew up on delaying my healthy coming out. Whoa, it's never been done before. Okay, you flipped it. Okay, so they almost didn't make you queer. Yeah, 
and, okay. and at the very least made it a much more painful, long, drawn-out process well into my adulthood of letting go of the baggage of the shame that comes from those cultures. And they're yeah. everywhere, not to yeah. just poo-poo on, on, on the Deep South, but these cultures are everywhere across the globe. And we forget today, too, you know, given props, like we imagine today, it's just kumbaya and easy for anybody to come out yeah. today. And it's not the truth. People still live in these places all over the place and are still dealing with a lot of it. It's not easy for everybody to come out. I think we live in a strange time now where for a lot of the population, it's a no brainer and it's relatively straightforward and, and no more painful than just your typical painful teenage experience. Yeah. yeah. But for a lot of people, it's, you know, it's still 1995 in a lot of places. That's a really good point. And I think also too, it's weird, like, you know, we have all these terms now and a greater understanding of different life experiences. But I think one of I'm I'm thinking about this as I say it. So let's see how this goes. But we did have this kind of private period where we got to kind of figure it all out. And now I think there's a new pressure to like, we have all the names on the list, the LGBTQAS plus blah, 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 like pick your thing and know what it is. And there's less opportunity maybe to live and figure it out like you in college, you, you know, you had to try it all. I, you know, I was really thinking about this today and we've, we live in this odd time right now where though we are, you know, embracing in large numbers of us, not all of us, but embracing the idea of being non-binary sexuality. Mm -hmm. Yet, we have steered so hard in the other direction with, you know, one of our first conversations started with this with today, everybody has gotten so stuck in binary thinking. Otherwise, everything is black and white, this or that, this side or that side. And mm -hmm. sexuality is the same way. People are quick to jump to an identity and that that is it. And then just driving themselves down that road without seeing what other side roads are around. Yeah, try take um, the side roads, people. Take the side roads. That's been the story of my life. I'm on a side road right now. <laughs> I love that. That's true. Literally, figuratively, it's all, uh, what a beautiful place to end it. So before I let you go, Danny, would you like to play a game? I love games. Let's play a game. Yes, thank God. Okay, this game is called Queer, Queerer, Queerist. Queerer, so I'm going to give you three things. Your job is to put them in order from least queer to most queer and tell me why. All right, I've played this before and I love this game. You, where have you played this before? This is my game. Um, I don't remember. It was probably two years ago. Give me their phone number and email address because this is proprietary IP. <laughs> Maybe they stole it from you. <laughs> God damn it. Everyone's coming for my bit. Okay, so the first thing, stop stalling. The first thing is the baby in the king cake. Are you familiar with king cakes? Absolutely. Of course. Okay, so for folks who don't know, it's sort of a vaguely religious tradition. You bake a doll, a little doll, into a cake, and then if you get the piece with the doll, something special happens. So that. Thing number two, the jump to recipe button. Does this mean anything to you? Recipe what? Are you a baker? Not really, unless it okay. comes out of a box. Okay, I respect that. So often if you Google a recipe, you'll get some blog and it's going to be like carrot cake or whatever. There's always a tiny little button that says jump to recipe. And if you miss it, the reason it's there is because the usually what happens is someone's written like a 30 page essay. Oh, about... yes. No, I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole fucking life story. I don't care about your life story. Where is the recipe? A hundred percent. And it goes on for ages. So yeah, the jump to recipe button as a way to fast track to the recipe. Thing number three, 
and this might speak to you, that moment when you lock eyes with a wild animal and you both freeze. So the three things are the baby in the king cake, the jump to recipe button, and that moment when you lock eyes with a wild animal and you both freeze, least queer to most queer, and why? These are the most random choices. And <laughs> I don't even know how in the hell I'm going to organize this answer. I think you can do it. Okay, let's start with, uh, which one do we want to start with? Least queer, build the suspense. The least queer, uh, it would be locking eyes with an animal because most <laughs> queers would not be out locking eyes with an animal. This is true. This is true. Okay. <laughs> Fair right, enough. That one's an easy one. Uh, the queerer one is going to be jump to the recipe. I think, <laughs> I, I think most humanity really wants that button. Yeah, this is true. So that's just a that's just a that's just a throwaway one. I bet you even Marjorie Taylor Greene is like jumped a recipe. <laughs> <laughs> Marjorie Taylor Greene is probably the one out there writing those damn recipes with <laughs> long, damn it, you're right. stories. <laughs> <laughs> you're totally right. And then the queerest one is the baby one. Just sexual innuendos jump to mind of digging around in this wet cake, God. looking for. <laughs> A baby looking for looking for the twink. <laughs> oh, yeah. OK, that's right. That's right. Who is twinkier than a baby? Oh, my exactly. God. This is beautiful. The ultimate twink. <laughs> the ultimate twink. The Christ child. OK, so let me quickly check your results. One, congratulations, Danny. A plus. Uh, one hundred percent. You are in fact a queer person. Yes. Yeah, the results. I've been are in. wondering for forty six years, and I am so happy to confirm this. I know it's one of the small joys I can give people. And so, before I let you go, and I really don't want to, is there anything you would like to plug? There are two things we absolutely forgot to talk about. My time in Canada. Ah, oh, you is, forgot. I did forget, and it actually kind of plugs into my broader gay story because uh, I did an exchange and I went to school in Quebec City. I had a Mormon girlfriend that summer. She was so much fun. She loved to go out and stay out all night. And it was perfect because she didn't want to have sex. So I had complete cover, was not pressured to have sex with her. We just hung out and had a blast. I freaking loved going to school in Quebec. Love, mm -hmm. love Quebec. I love Quebec. I will say. That's where I discovered Canada is way too cold for me. I'm sorry. Yeah, Quebec City, <laughs> Quebec in general is very cold. So are you are you plugging Quebec? Are you here on behalf of the Quebec Tourism Board? I am. I am plugging Quebec. Particularly, <laughs> I mean, I love Montreal. Montreal is one of my favorite cities to go to as a gay man for yeah. good, uh, good, let's, we'll just call it good bro time. <laughs> okay, great. That's right. Solidarity. But Quebec City is such an underrated city in North America. It's so freaking gorgeous. It's mm -hmm. a world heritage city. And most particularly U.S. people don't even know it exists. So I am plugging the hell out of it. I love that. Um, my goal next year is I'm making it to Winter Festival. Damn it. I have wanted to go every year. And let's be real. Quebec City is not exactly on the way to anywhere. And it's not easy to get to. Yeah. I will say uh, my other plug is, is I wanted to mention the organization I work with that I consult with right now, and they're called History and Erased. It is primary sourced K through 12 mainstream supplemental curriculum that's LGBTQ stories all through U.S. history. This is very U.S. based. Wow. No, Sorry, we love Canada, that. We, we love that here. Don't worry. We're in 3000, a little over 3000 schools across the U.S. right now, including all schools in New York City. But, you know, it's including the, the stories of important LGBTQ people who've been left out of the, the bigger picture. And it 
really just sort of sheds light on the fact that we've been around for a long time. Starts with pre-colonial history all the way up until today. If you would like to check us out, help support us, uh, you know, most of our, our work is based on the generosity of donors, but our website is unerased.org. Yeah, thank you. Log into your AOL accounts and go to unerased.org. Uh, <laughs> yes, that is there are so... still people out there on AOL. <laughs> oh my God. That is so amazing because obviously we didn't have any of that growing up and it was pretty much just kind of like white men built the world. And so it's so amazing to get this education in schools from such a young age, because like I have a two and a half year old nephew and he's growing up in a world where like, you're not going to have to like sit him down and have a big conversation about what a queer person is or why you shouldn't throw a rock at them or whatever. Like it's all fine. They're going to get it. So thank you for doing that important work. I think this is the, the sort of the most important piece of the, journey for equality is until kids understand that this is not some you know weird modern concept that we've all adopted ourselves to that is not you know not to be accepted there's still so much pushback out there today mm -hmm. um until kids understand that we've just been around and we've been part of time and history all along things are not going to completely change i think this is just the final nail to make that happen and mm -hmm. it's important for also the kids out there who are LGBTQ to see themselves in history, to understand not only have we existed, but we've done important things that matter too. I'll, I'll share a quick example that's one of my favorites, but America the Beautiful, if you're familiar, all US Americans love and sing. I'm very that's careful. What, that's not what to call Pollyanna it. sings when she wraps herself up in the flag, played by Haley Mills. Yeah. Right? So America the Beautiful. That song, okay. Yeah. It's a beautiful song, but written by a lesbian and it was actually a love poem to her partner at the time back in the 1800s oh my god so, u.s americans are singing a lesbian love song all the time yes <laughs> don't even know it this is it this is and what a perfect closure here this is our gay agenda this is how we do it so <laughs> sneak it in start them young uh this is how we make the next generation queer so danny thank you so so much because I was very queer when we started this recording and talking to you has made me queerer than ever. <laughs> I am honored to be a part of that, Trevor. Also, I'm very honored that you had me on. So thank you. It was my privilege. Uh, good luck in that nice warm coat for your trip to Quebec City next year. Uh, do you want to meet me there? Absolutely. Let's we'll set the date now as soon as we go off air, because I don't want anyone else sneaking in. I'm not joking, Trevor. Oh my God, let's do it. I'll email you. We okay. got, the, I have a recorded proof I, uh, that you're promising. All right, done. Perfect, all see right. you there. Okay, take care. All right, you too, Trevor. Well, that is it. That is a final episode. Thank you to everyone who uh, even remotely got close to contributing to this show. Thank you to the Sonar Network for giving it a home. Thank you to my editors, Sean Van Beaten and Harlow Castillo from the life cycle of You Made Me Queer. Thank you to Critty, who, you know, I think is one of sort of the, the creators of this in that Critty wrote and recorded the theme music, which you cannot have You Made Me Queer without this theme, which, uh, you know, I hope lives on. I hope is on like women in songs 25, whatever number they're on now, because... Uh, 
it's great. You can you can find more about Critty. Thank you so much. I'm still going to say my normal thing. I'm not dead yet. So you can email me at youmademequeer at gmail.com. I will still receive those emails. I'd love to hear from you. And hey, guess what? I haven't sold that book manuscript yet. So if you're interested in making that happen and you got a piggy bank you want to bring to the table, you can email me and let me know. Also, continue to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Because strangely, a few reviews ago, someone wrote, why do all queer people hate veterans? And that's still on my (laughs) Apple Podcasts review page. I'd respectfully like to have that bumped off. So why not leave a review? And that's it. Please reach out. If you enjoyed the show and you've never let me know, which is fine. I've done that with podcasts. It would be nice to know. I would love to receive your message just to know that you're out there and listening. And uh, I don't know. Did it mean something to you? Did it? Tell me. I would like to know that. That's a souvenir I can take with me. If it didn't mean anything to you and you just want to troll me, save it. Okay? There's a Reddit thread, I'm sure, who would love to have you, but it's not mine. And that's it. So for the final time, here we go. Cue credits. You Made Me Queer is created and produced by me, past tense Trevor Campbell. Our editor is, was, Harlow Castillo and OG Sean Van Beaton. Our theme song is by Critty. For more from music, check out lavenderbruisers.bandcamp.com. Our Instagram and Twitter handles are and forever will be at You Made Me Queer. New episodes of You Made Me Queer aren't coming out anymore, so dive into that back catalog just like my grinder profile demands you to. And from the bottom of my big, bent heart, thank you so much for listening to this free trash. I love you. And until next time, whenever that might be, remember, we're here, we're queer, and it's your fault.